Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we're looking at the 14th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 13, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 6, episode 14, or what the German regionalization team named Demons. I'm your host, John. In episode 13, Unhinged Harold berates Donna and Maddie for their breach of trust before James swoops in to save them and Harold sprays all his orchids. Cooper brings recuperating Audrey to the bookhouse, fresh from her one-eyed Jack's rescue. James and Donna reconcile. Harry IDs Jean Renault. Leo freaks out Bobby and Shelley by showing glimmers of life. And Ben picks up Audrey, who implies a coming reckoning. Josie is pushed by Jonathan to leave before he before her plans pay out, so she stalemates with Ben and tells Harry she's leaving. Maddie tells James she's leaving. Nadine remains delusional. Ben brings Leland back on as his lawyer. Leland breaks out some King and I, and Gordon Cole arrives to talk Cooper's shooter and Wyndham Earl and witnesses Philip Gerard miss his meds and go full Mike in the physical world. So this episode is one of the big ones, and it's right in front of one of the biggest ones. And there's plenty of things to be looking at. Uh, one of the first questions is, how do plans made in secret go awry? How are disguises used in this episode? And then probably the furthest reaching question out of this is how is Lodge Space influencing Twin Peaks here? And before we dig into that, we're going to look into the production history of back when it was made in 1990. The episode was written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels and directed by Leslie Linka Gladder. So this is the highest ranking episode as far as um, as far as who's on it. Uh, that you're going to get because you get both of the other two writers besides Lynch and Frost and you get Leslie Lincoln Gladder, who is the, um, the, the director who directs more Twin Peaks than anybody except for David Lynch. And it's a good place to have all these folks because it's right before the reveal episode. Now, particular interesting detail that I found in Twin Peaks Unwrapped is that uh, Gladder knew at the time of directing this that Leland was the killer. And uh, she said a bogey script would have Ben Horn listed for his dialogue. So I don't know if she figured it out or if um, or if she was actually told by this point. But uh, 
Yeah, I know that the actors weren't, but um, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe Gladder was actually um, you know, tight enough into this show that um she really she really would get that information. I don't know. A little more concrete. Um Leslie Linka Gladder said she didn't have any favorite scenes or favorite episodes, but directing Lynch as Gordon is one of the most memorable. She said when he walks in with that, <laughs> with that extremely loud, um, you know, I'm, I'm deaf voice. Uh, he, um, the, the entire crew was barely holding it together. And, um, I know, I know that Gladder said she had like tears running down her cheeks while she was, while she was filming. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a, it was a good bit of humor for everybody, not just us. As far as Cole's uh, background, like why he was named Gordon Cole, I mean, it was the character in Sunset Boulevard that um, that is the reference. But um, what specifically uh, I think is phrased best in Conversations with Mark Frost by David Bushman. Um, Frost said, we loved the idea that Gordon Cole was seen only momentarily in Sunset Boulevard. They imbued this essentially off-screen character with abilities and powers you never saw demonstrated, so it became an inside joke for us. When we wrote Lynch's character, it seemed like the perfect opening. Yeah, especially since Gordon Cole was actually a name used in one saliva bubble that um, turned out to be not quite the perfect opening. <laughs> as far as Lynch's voice... Robert Engels said he had a deaf mother, and some of her expressions made it into his words. And he said, that was kind of my favorite character, I guess. And in Reflections, Al Strobel talked about actually working with Gordon Cole, especially in that last scene of this episode. Being in the presence of David was very similar to the one time I met the Dalai Lama. His creativity and inner joy are infectious yet he makes everyone around him feel uniquely and equally valued. When David showed up on set, I thought how cool the maestro came to play in our sandbox. And Strebel continued, as Cooper's boss, he was hilarious. I especially liked the hearing aid gag, and what a great setup for the heavy stuff to come. Yeah, no kidding. And there was a lot of tension in this episode. I mean, I remember back in 1990 as a 12-year-old, um, two specific scenes that really made me nervous, like capital N nervous, uh, <clears throat> you know, Bobby and Shelly making out and, um, you know, basically getting ready to have sex right in front of Leo and, um, you know, everything to do with Mike was absolutely scary. You know, thank God Gordon's, uh, <laughs> Gordon's humor gave a big mood break in the episode. And as far as me connecting, uh, that to be David Lynch, um, I, you know, I wasn't paying attention to anything with credits at that point. And, um, I, I remember hearing my parents say, so that's David Lynch. <laughs> you know, I, I think my dad thought it was a jump the shark moment, inserting the creator into his own show, but you know what? I enjoyed it for what it was. And, um, I'm never not going to love Gordon Cole as a character. And about that Leo party scene that freaked me out, um, Dan Ashbrook said in Reflections that Harley Payton wrote that party scene. It was fun. We had a good time doing it, and I really thought that Eric did a great job. He had a hard time. Or he had a hard job letting me fuck with him when he's catatonic. It's not easy to be pulled on and prodded and all that shit. So, <laughs> I think they uh, they had a lot of fun making those scenes. I, I think uh, 
Eric DeRay and Dana Ashbrook and Manchin Amick had a really fun relationship behind the scenes from what I hear. And uh, it's fun that it comes out in um, scenes like that and are so filled with tension. And um, thanks to Essential Wrapped in Plastic, we got a, uh, a glimpse of like what could have been but didn't end up happening uh, from Grace Zabriskie about Sarah Palmer. Uh, she said that she spoke to Peyton about having a more psychic background for Sarah. You know, she wanted to be identical aunts, you know, Sarah and Beth, like uh, like Laura and Maddie, played by Cheryl Lee. And, um, and uh, Zabriskie asked for untold generations of witches, named such be- of their knowledge, uh, named such because of their knowledge and their powers. Their family history was denied out of shame for a number of generations, and Sarah was scared to connect with Maddie and uh, and Beth. There were some lines in this episode about um, about Maddie's aunt, um, and um, <laughs> she said, "I was so excited to see uh, when they seemed to be developing that story, and it sounds like Peyton was interested in doing that too." But you know, there's the uh, there, there's the upcoming strategy after the murder reveal is completely wrapped up with uh, episode 16 that, um, you know, there, there were supposed to be shorter story arcs and, you know, not relying so much on continuity to kind of give the viewers a little bit of a break of that main complaint about, um, you know, it's like, oh, we can't miss an episode. We'll never we'll never know what's going on. So, uh, yeah, I, I think probably this storyline got nixed due to that edict uh, later on. As far as when this episode aired, it aired on Saturday, November 3rd to 11.3 million viewers, which was actually only down a 0.1 million viewers from the week before, which is great because they've been losing 1 million a week at that point. Um, so... I think the we, we found the floor of the Twin Peaks viewing audience before the murder at around 11.3, 11.4 million viewers. Yeah, they're, they're at least hanging around that long until the Laura reveal gets settled. Now, we'll, we'll find out the floor's a little bit lower after that, but uh, yeah. Anyway, the, um, we're pretty much at the point where we're going to talk about the Log Lady intros, but I found a fun fact about the Log Lady intros that um, they were debuting on Friday nights on Bravo in 1993, and I didn't, I didn't notice that until I noticed that this one for episode 13 debuted against the... Um, the debut of Fox Network's The X-Files in their pilot. I didn't realize they were actual competitors for ratings. I mean, sure, it was on Bravo Network, so, you know, it was like the uh, the indie film station um, on cable, which not, uh, not everybody had. You know, cable ratings aren't exactly comparable like they are today, but... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a funny thought to think that, you know, like one of the reasons why X-Files season one might not have had great ratings is because it was up against uh, new David Lynch material in in a classic show uh, reintroduced after a few years, Twin Peaks. Now, if you weren't watching the X-Files, what would that uh, what would be in that uh, Log Lady intro? It's this little bit written by David Lynch. Um when he's trying to put a final context on this show for us to think about. Sometimes we want to hide from ourselves. We do not want to be us. It is too difficult to be us. 
it is at these times that we turn to drugs and alcohol or behavior to forget that we are ourselves. This is, of course, only a temporary solution to a problem, which is going to keep returning. And sometimes these temporary solutions are worse for us than the original problem. Yes, it is a dilemma. Is there an answer? Of course there is. A wise person once said, with a smile, the answer is within the question. So there's this (laughs) dissociation um, theme that I've been talking about in particular in relation to things like drugs. And, um, you know, I kind of think there's an and or behavior to forget that we are ourselves. But, um, you know, it's like when when people are on drugs in Twin Peaks, they come out with the nicknames. And um, I kind of wonder, like, you know, is that... You know, are you using a nickname because in part you have forgotten who yourself is? Um, you know, it's like it, it that fits really well with um, anything I've been saying up to now. Uh, <clears throat> and, you know, this, you know, the, the drugs and everything like that. Um, this is, of course, only a temporary solution to a problem which is going to keep returning. So, you know, it's like you, you do the cycle. And then when the drugs wear off, you begin the cycle again. You go back to starting positions. You uh, restart a time loop. You know, it's like whatever you want. It's it's all, um, yeah. It it's there are a lot of things that can personify this message that Lynch is talking about here, um, and the um, the temporary solution being even worse than the original problem. Um, Maybe it's because, you know, time continues anyway, whether we repeat the same habit or not. But what it does is it ingrains it and it gives it more foundation and more, you know, more more uh, physical world to attach these behaviors to. Um, and also, you'll be out of time if you ever do make your way through these, um, these problems. But um, how do you get through these problems? The answer is within the question. Well, I think that means if you're asking the question, you can kind of explore your way to an answer. Like you're recognizing the problem if you're acting, if you're asking the question. And um, if you can see it, if you can think about it, that means you have the ability to take it on. Now, before we can try to apply that to this episode scenes, uh, let's go ahead and uh, listen to some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back. We are going to start looking at episode 13, piece by piece, and uh, we're going to look at it theme by theme, starting with how do plans made in secret go awry? So the first plan to pay attention to is Cooper's. Um, Cooper's secret plan ends up actually hurting Audrey. Now, the the first act of the show deals with the fallout from last week's dual break-ins, and... um, you know, we'll we'll get to Harold's house later, but um, in this one, Cooper definitely feels responsible for Audrey's state. It begins in the book house. Cooper's carrying Audrey to the bed. You know, Harry and Hawk are right there. Um, you know, but besides besides noting that um, 
Harry's leather jacket proves that he's basically Cappy's father. <laughs> um, the uh, the the scene is pretty, uh, you know, pretty uh, serious. You know, Cooper Cooper assesses that there's signs of heroin, and um, you know, he 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 talks about Audrey. You know, poor kid. Um, you know, there there's this fatherly vibe that Cooper, uh, you know, has, and um. You know, then Audrey, in her haze, she says things like, you know, Daddy, can you see me, Daddy? Can you catch me? Um, then she describes how her throat hurts, how she's sinking, and then, you know, help me. And then she wakes up, actually, uh, enough to know that she's somewhere. Um, and she she puts, um, he, he puts his hand on her cheek, and she reaches up and holds that hand. You know, and then, and then she says, my prayers, I prayed that you would come and you did. So, um, yeah, Cooper leans in to hug her and he's very protective here. And, you know, this is more fatherly body language. Now, later on in Harry's office, um, you know, we, we get the mugshot pages here and this is where, um, oh yeah, <laughs> the mugshot pages, um, you know, before the internet and having a computer to look things up, you had to have these books full of pictures of criminals so that you can ID them. And like if, if you catch somebody and you want to kind of look through to find out if you've got a person or not, you know, you, you go through these books to find out if um, they are the criminal you're looking for or if uh, anybody else is looking for this person. So, uh, yeah, that was pre-internet stuff right there. Um, so in this scene, though, besides um, noting about Jean Renault, um, you know, he, he basically... Um, gives Harry an update on Audrey. And he, he says, this close to a lethal dose, hard to imagine such cruelty. Um, and this is where Harry tells Cooper that, um, that Cooper was um, on that security camera footage that was playing on the T or that was paused on the TV right next to Jean and Blackie that Harry saw, you know, they, they put together that um, Jean had this plan to kill Cooper and, um, you know, this is when the gravity of what Cooper did really settles in. And he says, I went outside of my jurisdiction twice. I violated my professional code and now Audrey is paying the price. And, you know, I mean, Harry remains the voice of the present right here, actually. Um, you know, he talks about how Audrey's situation has actually improved. And, um, you know, Cooper isn't really listening to that. He's just listening to the past right now. And he connects the he connects this, this Audrey, um, escapade with, um, you know, his own backstory with Caroline. He doesn't say Caroline right here, but we know that's what it, what he's talking about in retrospect. And, you know, he says, this isn't the first time someone else paid for what I had to do. Damn it. I should have known better. And, um, you know, Harry tries to ground him a little bit. Um, you know, he, he says, you're the best lawman I've ever seen, but Coop, sometimes you think too much. And then he pours him a coffee, you know, coffee being the, the key word for a lot of, uh, clearer, uh, smarter thinking. Um, you know, so he pours some coffee from a thermos into a coffee cup and then they share a drink. So, you know, I mean, technically it might've been whiskey, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll call it coffee because it's in the coffee cups. And, um, I think it ends up settling Cooper back into, a a more present, uh, place. So I'd say overall that, you know, Cooper's secret plan actually did do something good. And, um, 
you know, I, I think it would have gone this way anyway for Audrey, but you know, Cooper's holding himself up to a standard that's very high here. And, um, yeah, hopefully he does understand that, um, he actually helped her too, more than just, uh, put her in a, uh, collateral damage kind of position. As far as the other cliffhanger or the other, um, the other uh, break-in operation last episode, we've got Donna's secret plan. And um, in this case, it hurts Maddie. So they're in Harold's apartment right where we left off last episode. And, um, you know, Harold's got the trawl. He uh, he just scraped his face. And um, we get James busting in. And he pushes Harold out of the way and grabs Maddie by the shoulder, but only calls for Donna. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, sure, he reaches his hand back to get Donna. But... Um, Okay, from a choreography standpoint, it makes sense because Donna needed a chance to try to be able to grab the diary from Harold and be unsuccessful. Um, and, you know, technically, maybe James thinks that Donna can take care of herself, but um, him grabbing Maddie right away ends up kind of doing that thing that they've been doing, the, that trio, like since at least the song, where, um, you know, he's, he's up front connected more to maddie but then just like um just like at the song um you know it's like he might be initially connected to maddie but uh when they're outside in front of harold's place you know donna's apologizing that this whole mess is her fault and um you know james is only focused on you know did he hurt you and um you know he doesn't ask maddie did he hurt you <laughs> he just asked donna uh so anyway he wants to go straight to the sheriff but donna says no just hold me Th this whole time that they're having this uh, this um, converging scene where they're like reconnecting, you know, we've got Maddie looking on as as if she also didn't just go through something. So uh, yeah, so yeah, it's it's actually structured just like how it was with um, with Maddie or with the uh, with the Just You song, except that uh, Maddie doesn't have a vision at the end of this. Anyway, next scene with James and Donna. Uh, Maddie's driving away. And, um, and, you know, James and Donna have a talk at the curb, probably outside of her house. Um, you know, Donna feels bad for endangering Maddie's safety, but, um, why doesn't she say that to Maddie on camera and why? Um, and, um, James basically says no more secret plans. And I'm actually, I, I feel like she didn't have any secret plans after this, you know, except for her, um, her parentage, but you know, that's further enough down the line. And right here, because no more secret plans will probably take place, um, James has this clear head and says, um, you know, he, he now knows exactly what I believe. It's like if we put our hearts together and keep them that way forever, we'd be safe no matter what. So it's that metaphor, just like the heart necklace um, that he had with Laura. And I think he thought that... Um, you know, maybe if he kept his heart next to Laura, she would be safe no matter what, too. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But anyway, James ends up kissing Donna's neck in this um, at the end of this scene. And they seem to be reconciling just fine. And um, there's there's this weird kissing next uh, imagery that happens in this episode. And I'm I'm going to keep bringing it up and then maybe find a pattern of like, you know, who's doing it and why, uh, soon on. But, you know, it's like, I'm thinking, you know, the throat is kind of, um, I mean, that that's where that, that gold ball from, um, from the giant went into Cooper. So, you know, it's like, there, there's something about throats and, uh, you know, like 
the, you know, Bob rearing his head back, Harold rearing his head back. You know, there, there's, there's something about it. And I'm kind of wondering about on the love side of things. Now, the thing about, um, about Donna's plan that they don't talk about though, is how this plan actually hurts Harold too. Um, you know, we won't see that final result until next episode, but you know, um, Harold's lines at the beginning of this episode are, I trusted you. I thought you were different. You made me feel I could return to the world and find something decent and pure, but you're just like all the others. You lie, you betray, and then you laugh about it. You are unclean. You can, you have contaminated me. So, you know, talk about disease and illness from a couple log lady intros ago, you know, the, uh, you know, Harold, Harold inverts that and, um, thinks that the disease is from the outside rather than the thing that's already crippling him into thinking that the outside is the disease. So, you know, he's, he's hurting from all this. And, um, you know, the next time we see him, he's spraying his orchids and he's roaring back in pain, you know, doing that, doing that, throw his head back thing. Now, I always thought he was spraying poison on his orchids, but um, it's um, it's probably not actually poison. M from uh, the Sparkwood and Twenty One podcast, she she talked about how he he was hydrating his orchids, and um, you know, talking how like orchids, you know, if you spray them too much, if they take on too much water, uh, they it you know it leads to disease, and um, you know, it's like he he's kind of overwatering the orchids, and they're um, they're uh, you know, pardon, pardon the inadvertent metaphor, but you know, they're drinking full ready to descend. <laughs> and as we get Harold howling at the end of that, his, uh, his face transitions into this pure white reflection of water, um, that, um, is catching moonlight. That that's pretty much Harold, uh, descending into his madness that he decides to end. And, um, and later on this episode, we actually have Donna being true to her word, and she actually is coming clean uh, with Harry. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, there's this transition scene. We see a light, uh, a ceiling light, and then it, it pans down, and we realize that it's one of those um, interrogation rooms in the sheriff's station. And uh, Harry's on one side, Donna's on the other. And Harry's saying, are you and James into something again? Um, you know, this is a lot like the boy who cried wolf. And, um, so yeah, uh, Donna is actually giving information to the police and, um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe she needed to talk to Harold so that she actually would feel like she needed to come clean, um, you know, through the, uh, you know, things getting out of hand, you know, so she is telling Harry about the diary, um, about everything that Harold was doing and what he had and uh, pretty much setting up the fact that um, they're going to get a warrant for Harold's place now, thanks to Donna coming in. But we don't really get to hear too much about it because this is when Gordon Cole interrupts and, you know, it's like, you know, excuse me, is there, I'm looking for Sheriff Truman and, you know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, like just taking over everything. And, um, you know, Harry steps out into the hall to have a private conversation. And, uh, you know, after, after Cole's, uh, time and, you know, it's like, Oh, there's the one armor now, you know, it's like, finally they walk away and, you know, Donna heard the whole thing in the conference room and she pops her head out in one of my favorite bits of comedy where she, you know, she, she's got this amazing, you know, like what the hell look, <laughs> I don't know. I, I just enjoyed that. You know, even though it's, uh, her getting this close to the supernatural yet again and it just doesn't take 
as far as lower key plans go, um, we've got Bobby's insurance money plan that ends up hurting Shelly. Um, and you know, I'm from spark when 21 made a mention how this is a metaphor for teenage pregnancy. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if that was actually a thought going through somebody's head, uh, when making these episodes, but, um, you know, we've got, um, Leo in the wicker wheelchair and the red shirt, you know, he's being bashed around by who's revealed as Bobby. You know, the insurance guy is commending Shelly and cousin Bobby for taking care of Leo full time. And um, not not that this is uh, here, there or anywhere, but Ian Abercrombie plays that insurance guy. And um, anybody who's a big Star Wars fan who's watched Clone Wars, that's Emperor Palpatine and uh, the voice of. And, you know, he's a character actor all over the place, but that was probably the most noteworthy out of, uh, out of the, the folks my age and younger anyway. Um, but yeah, that guy's funny too, because you know, he's like, Oh, you know, you were so generous and this and, you know, but then when he hands over the check and, um, they realize that the check is microscopic. Uh, you know, he, he just, he just, you know, it's a, Oh, I'll see myself out. You know, <laughs> like, like this is kind of a normal thing that happens. You know, it's like, yeah. But anyway, Shelly realizes, you know, it's like, you've got to think of something, Bobby, for the both of us. And um, this is when Leo groans. And um, the scene ends with Bobby and Shelly just staring at him. Now, that groan scared the hell out of them at the time. But, you know, did they take the warning seriously? Um, well, at night, um, you know, it's like the, ho the house is lit in that reddish brown, so it's color-coded red, which isn't necessarily great. Um, you know, it's like you hear you hear the kazoo sounds, and you see Leo in his party headgear with the sunglasses in a close-up. So, you know, it almost feels like Leo's looking at us anyway already. And, um, you know, we got Bobby and Shelly behind him throwing this ridiculous party, having fun. And, you know, Shelly lays on the table in front of him and, you know, Bobby's kissing her and, you know, and then he's, uh, he's basically roasting Leo, you know, like taking on his life choices, the beating tactics, murder, attempt to kill Shelly. And, you know, then he says, this is your life, Leo Johnson, you deserve it. And, you know, it's like, while well, they're basically ready to have sex after a little bit, um, Leo moves slightly and faces Shelly, which, you know, that, that freaks everybody out you know, especially me <laughs> back in the day, you know, it's like, I'm assuming that Leo's just going to jump up and kill them. And I'm assuming Shelly does too. Um, and, you know, eventually she says, you know, this is too weird. I can't do this anymore. So like, I, I think this is her like wake up moment from her delusion, at least in part, even though she has to kind of live with the delusion now. Um, you know, so they take Leo's sunglasses off, um, you know, Bobby starts, you know, using this appeasing language, you know, and, uh, you know, and then it's like, okay, I'll, um, I'll, uh, get you a cake. You know, it's like, well, you, a slice of cake's good, right? And, uh, you know, then he like pats, pats Leo on the back and Leo goes face first into the, uh, into the cake. And, um, you know, the only thing that could break the tension is when Bobby says, you know, good thing we didn't light the candles. And it seems like there's definite genuine laughter between, uh, him and Emic. So, you know, they're trying to make the best of it, but uh, the secret plan to make a lot of money didn't quite pan out. And the last big secret plan comes from Josie. Um, her her five-year plan wraps up, but Harry is the one in the crossfire getting hurt. Not, you know, not to mention Josie's in a very dangerous position for herself, but uh, yeah, 
the uh, the collateral damage is still present as well. Um, so Josie has to leave in order to protect uh, Harry. You know, it's like we we get this um, <laughs> before this we get this cute little assault scene where Nadine um, goes after Ed, and you know, it's like basically implies that like there's going to be a lot of sex tonight or whatever, and uh, you know, it's like she uh, she's going to eat him right up, and uh, yeah, like. Uh, you know, it's like there, there's this cute, you know, it's like, oh, those scamps. But, uh, you know, then it immediately goes into the scene where Jonathan Kunigai is buckling his belt as if he uh, he just had relations with Josie. And, um, yeah, so, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, I almost feel like that's a message saying, you know, it's like, oh, sure, it's cute with uh, with Ed and Nadine. But uh, salt really isn't actually cute. Uh, and, you know, now we've got Josie. Um, trying to uh get out of her situation um jonathan basically says he has a one-way ticket for josie from seattle to hong kong um and you know they they do a lot of countering that josie can't win you know josie says i have one more day and jonathan says we leave tonight uh josie says i haven't received the insurance money ben horn hasn't paid me either um and then you know uh she says, you know, she's waited five years for this. And Jonathan says, Mr. Eckert will make it more than worth your while. And Josie says, you can't make me leave. And Jonathan grabs her by the throat and says, be adaptable. Um, you know, then, then a line that uh, Josie used unsuccessfully with Hank, we had an arrangement. And Jonathan says, leave with him. Uh, yeah, leave with me tonight or I kill the sheriff. That's the arrangement. And, you know, it goes into a commercial break right there. But uh, she obviously takes this as, uh, okay, I have to do this. Because the next time we see Pine Lodge, you know, Harry's actually coming in right then. And, you know, he's seeing um, he's seeing Josie and her assistant, Mr. Lee, taking her bags outside. And, um, you know, then she says, uh, I'm going away. And all he can say is like, where, why? Um, and then we get a lot of psychology from Josie right here. Um, she says, I always called you from here and it was where I could talk to you and be everything you wanted me to be, you know, <laughs> like, uh, so she's basically saying right off the top that she was wearing a mask for Harry and she did want to be, um, whatever it was that he wanted, you know, it's like the, the, she, wearing masks, wearing these disguises, um, even with the people that she's interested in. Um, there, there's this odd, there's this odd parallel with Donna and Harold here, but, um, you know, it's a similar result. You know, it's like if you put on for people that you're interested in, um, the other person will be hurt eventually in some way or another. And, you know, uh, Josie, puts a nail in the coffin here you know she says she sold the mill it's over she's going home don't think badly of me and you know he kisses her on the mouth rather than the neck um and says you know mr lee leave us alone and jonathan actually complies for the moment which is interesting i guess he trusts josie here for some reason um you know harry tells her not to leave and um Josie tries to, you know, say like, is this contractual? She says, are you saying this is the police? And, um, when he can't say yes, then he, and then she says, it's best that you forget about me. And, um, as she's walking away, Harry says, I love you twice. Um, you know, the first time she stops and turns, 
but then the but then she you know heads back to the door and then the second time he says it she keeps going right out the door so we've got a heartbroken harry and um in danger josie as far as um the next question how are disguises used this episode um We've got a number of different types, and uh, we've got these un unintentional disguises, too, where, um, you know, we've got Nadine wearing the disguise of an 18-year-old, um, you know, and she's protecting herself while she's healing, but, um, you know, she doesn't know that she's doing it exactly. So, you know, we've got this, um, you know, we've got her, you know, bound, bounding into the Hurley house, and, you know, she says, you know, she she marvels at not being treated like a kid, you know, it's like... The, um, you know, you got to use a credit card, all that stuff. Um, and then she says, you know, it's like, let's act like this place is ours, like we're married. And, um, you know, like, you know, do all the things married people do. And, you know, slugs Ed playfully uh, when he doesn't seem to get that she's implying about, you know, the kind of romps that she wants. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like that could actually hurt him. And so could throwing him on the couch. And, um, you know, she alludes to the sexual advances while Ed's eyes are completely bugged out. You know, it's like he's thinking, you know, it's like, wow, I'm being I'm being beaten right here. And, um, you know, Nadine just isn't noticing it. And I know this was supposed to be comic relief, you know, back when, um, you know, bang zoom to the moon was still a thing um, that, you know, people just said without thinking exactly what it meant. And, um, yeah, so it's it's comic relief, but you know she's also endangering Ed and all all the uh, refrigerators in the world, you know. <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, the the other inadvertent disguise is um, Maddie actually coming out of hers. You know, it's like she's um, she's pulling herself out of the influence of Laura Palmer in this episode. Um, you know, after after the Herald scenes. Um, the next morning, it's a bright day on a lake. Uh, you know, the gazebo is right there, and Maddie's just, you know, like really serene with it. And um, the Twin Peaks theme is playing. And, um, you know, so it's like a very important moment whenever the Twin Peaks theme actually plays. You know, it's like this the emotion is real here is kind of the way that I like to think of that theme coming through. Um, you know, like everybody is being authentic. And, um, you know, we got James's bike sounding and then we see the bike and then he comes over and sits next to her. And, um, you know, now the camera's looking at their faces and, um, James basically tells Maddie, I think I owe you an apology. And, um, you know, Maddie says, you looked at me and saw Laura. And then, uh, she says, you want to know something strange? I liked it. So, um, you know, Maddie's kind of coming clean as a willing participant in this delusion that she's been kind of living within. And, um, you know, we get more details about Laura here. Uh, when we were growing up, Laura and I were so close, it was scary. I could feel her thoughts like our brains were connected or something. Our mothers were the same way. And I think this is the line that Zabriskie liked, <laughs> like to see. Um <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, this is more connecting Maddie to Laura, but also more connecting Maddie to the supernatural that Sarah and Laura all belong to. And Maddie says, when she died, suddenly I had a chance to be Laura. At least other people saw me like that way or saw me in that way, like the way you looked at me. I like that, too. And um, yeah, James's James's catchphrase, it was wrong. Uh, <laughs> 
but you know, Maddie, Maddie basically comes back and says, you know, it's, it wasn't one thing or the other for a while. I got to be somebody different. Now I'm just me again. So, you know, we got James and Cooper being very headstrong that like their actions are only bad rather than also possibly positive. Um, <clears throat> but you know, now I'm just me again is a disconnection where she gets to be herself again. And, um, you know, she'll declare that again to, uh, in the next episode with with Sarah and Leland in the morning to make it also official. But, um, you know, this is wave one of probably what would have meant to be three before it was interrupted with her death. But, um, yeah, I I want to I want to actually shout out Leslie Lincoln because like the other scene that Maddie had that was really amazing was that one where it's like, you know, it's like, and everybody thinks I'm Laura but I'm me or like, you know, but I'm not. And, you know, it's like, um, uh, gladder, uh, in that episode, you know, Maddie was like finally understanding her situation and, um, you know, kind of confessing all this to Leland at the time. But, um, Leslie Lincoln gladder had a really nice handle on how to give Cheryl Lee the, um, the vehicle to like have good, you know, have great moments with Maddie here. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, like I, I just, the the best Maddie came from Leslie Linky Gladder, just like the best Josie also does. But we're not quite there yet because in this scene, um, the rest of the dialogue involves stuff like uh, you and Donna belong together and I'm going home tomorrow. So, you know, she kisses James on the cheek, walks away, walks off ca camera. And, um, you know, she she basically does right by James here and is authentically herself. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that... Um, she doesn't give Donna the same kind of respect. And uh, I kind of feel like in that case, it's because James opened his heart to Maddie, but um, you know, Donna didn't have that same respect, you know, it's like she was all sassy and, you know, like I'm your competitor kind of vibes. Um, so yeah, I can see why she went just to James rather than to James and Donna about this. But anyway, this is the second time we get to hear that Donna and James are meant to be together. So um, it's established both by the two people and by the um, by the third person in the triangle that, okay, the triangle is officially over. As far as Ben Horn goes, he doesn't have a hidden identity, but he kind of gives a hidden meaning to his money. And um, that ends up translating into everything that he does, um, including his attempt at getting Audrey back and, uh, you know, paying money for it. But then Hank, you know, you know, keep the money and, you know, say goodbye to Cooper, that kind of stuff. Um, so, so Ben has left Cooper in the dark about Ben's involvement with One-Eyed Jacks, for instance. Um, you know, Ben, Ben hides his business dealings. Uh, from his partners. Um, you know, we've got Ben. Oh boy. <laughs> so at the beginning part of this episode, Cooper doesn't know that Ben is involved with one eye jacks. Um, you know, Cooper has his briefcase. It's the hotel at night. Um, the, the dining room seems closed at this point. And, um, Ben comes up to Cooper who's still dressed in his, um, in his dark clothes. Um, you know, says, got your call. Um, and then Cooper gives him information in stages almost so the Cooper can see how Ben is reacting. You know, we, 
your, your daughter has been freed without needing to make payment. Was it a brothel? Blackie was killed before she could be questioned. Killed by Jean Renault, who escaped. Um, you know, at this point, Ben is assessing the money. And um, the only thing that kind of stops him momentarily is hearing that Audrey had a drug overdose. You know, that definitely threw him. And um, at the end, he shakes Cooper's hand, um, hugs him a little while in this uh, ingenuous, disingenuous move. Um, and, um, you know, the very end of the scene, Ben's holding on to the briefcase and he kind of pats it fondly, like, you know, like, you know, glad you're back. <laughs> uh, I mean, that scene goes into a commercial break. And then the next time we see Ben, he's at the book house with Cooper. Um, you know, there's a pan up from the floor. We see Audrey sleeping and we hear Ben's voice. So we know right away that he's there. You know, he says she looks like an angel. And, um, you know, we see Cooper and um, he leans over Audrey and says, your father's here. And, you know, we've got Ben looming over her, looking insincere. Uh, you know, thank God. I was so worried about you. Worried sick. Um, and you can tell the Cooper doesn't buy it. And you can tell that um, Audrey explains things without explaining them. You know, she says, I'm aware of things too, Daddy. I saw so much. And then Ben, you know, to kind of direct it his way, he says, we'll sort it out together. And Audrey's right there with him saying, yes, Daddy, you and I. And, you know, that scene ends with her staring past the camera um, you know, away from him and away from Cooper too. Um, you know, she asks if Cooper can drive him home so that she has a chance to actually talk to Cooper probably. And, um, you know, Ben says, yes, of course, or maybe we can all go together, you know, as if it was this great idea that he just thought of that doesn't actually protect him from keeping his secrets. And you can see right on Audrey's face. She is so done with him, and there is a reckoning coming. Now, later on, we see Ben again, except this time it's with Josie, who's demanding her money. And um, Ben is doing his best to keep her money away from her. So, you know, it starts out with, uh, you know, a scene of them near the fireplace. They're they're toasting with, uh, with wine glasses, and um, they say, to the fire. You know, they're they're wrapping up the um the business transaction about burning the mill. And, you know, Josie says, you know, she's there, she has the contract with Pete's signature and needs her money before this. And this is an envelope she's holding on to. And Ben comes up to her and you know, this is where he kisses her neck, which is that weird habit of this episode. Um while he tells her once the Icelanders pay her once the Icelanders pay, then her percentage will be immediately available. And, um, you know, Josie basically, you know, puts her feet in the sand because this is it for her. She knows that Jonathan's uh, making her leave tonight. So she says, I won't leave this office without my money. And then, you know, Ben is very clear with the business transactions. He understands that she's being pressured somewhere. Um, and, you know, now the swishy drums kick in in the background and he's like, oh, I'm going to play now. 
you know, he, he does that thing where he holds up his little key and he says, this key unlocks a safe with a fascinating dossier on Josie. And, um, you know, then Josie counters with, if anything happens to her, a safety deposit box in another city will incriminate him. And she says, we'll be buried side by side. And they are both laughing here. And uh, Ben says, stalemate. And I mean, I got to say right here, um, Leslie Linka-Gladder, in addition to being great for Cheryl Lee, she always makes sure, like she she actively says that she wanted to give Joan Chen particularly good material when she had scenes with her. And this one, as, as far as my, my assessment goes, this is the best Josie scene we'll ever get. And it's amazingly good. I wish this was Josie all the way through. But anyway, after the... Um, after the word stalemate, she steps away and she's back to being serious. You know, none of this playful laughing, you know, one-upsmanship stuff. She says, your move, cash. And then how does he get out of this? He gives her a sign of good faith, which is the Tokyo bank check for $5 million from Tojimura, who she does, I mean, he doesn't tell her how he got it or why he has it or anything. Um, you know, she just she just looks at it. It seems a valid check. And then she trades for documents and walks away. We are finished. And, you know, Ben says, you know, Josie, well played. And, um, yeah, so that's over, except there's this, this shuffling of Tojimura's money. And, of course, Tojimura shows up after this. In the, in the Great Northern Dining Area, there's this um this close up on a cigar being lit and then we see it's Tojimura and Ben at a table and it's during business hours um you know Tojimura basically says that uh, she gave a 5 million dollar check and has received nothing in return and um you know Ben he he does this thing where you know it's like oh it's uh you know the psychic uh as well as financial troubles brought on by the fire are doing this and that and this and that and um he wants to foster community healing which uh yeah I don't know um I'm not sure how much he would have in him anyway considering he's not naming lost jobs as part of his abstract terms um and here we get the the wildest kind of thing to say from Tojimura, because of course we all know she's Catherine. And, um, you know, there's this comment about like, I know all about fire, you know, um, my, my relatives were part of Nagasaki or however she says it. It's an absolute cringe moment that would not fly anymore. I mean, you know, from Tojimura's point of view, I could see why that would work. And from a thematic point of view, I could totally understand why Twin Peaks wouldn't mind connecting to the atom bomb. But, uh, you know, Catherine, you can't have that. And Twin Peaks writers, um, you can't have that. And I know in 1990, they all thought they could. And uh, that's why it's there. But I am glad that, um, you know, uh, that our media has kind of evolved through that a little bit. And sure, Ben is hiding his um, his money. Um, or his other business uh, interactions from everybody else. You know, like he keeps each one separate without talking about the other business dealings. And um, of course, in this scene, there's also this double problem where Tojimura is Catherine, and that is an overt disguise. 
So at this point in the scene, after the after that poor Nagasaki comment, um, Leland starts singing "Getting to Know You." Uh, Trudy, uh, the the waitress, uh, the Great Northern waitress, uh, is actually the piano player there, which is a nod from uh, one of the scriptwriters, Robert Engels, because he always includes his wife, Jill Engels, who plays Trudy. Uh, so. Um, if you ever see Trudy in this show, it's probably because Robert Engels wrote the script, at least in part. But yeah, so Leland starts singing, Trudy is playing the piano, and uh, Ben gets wrapped up in it because he's trying to he's trying to quiet down Leland. You know, like with the, um, you know, I hope these people are on your jury and <laughs> to, to prove that, you know, maybe he's, uh, what do you call it, um, not, uh, not altogether up in the noggin is the implication. But uh, Tojimura, while Ben is wrapped up with Leland, goes over to the bar, who happens to sit next to Pete. And, um, you know, Pete just turns around and goes, the king and I, because he finally recognizes the song. And, um, you know, then he, then he starts talking up Tojimura just for small talk. And he was like, do you like musicals? No. Not even Fiddler? No. Um, and um, <laughs> Tojimura, you know, Catherine doing this is absolutely just full of it here. You know, it just says, I find adherence to fantasy troubling and unreasonable. Yet, <laughs> you know, like, wow, Catherine, you know, the the Nagasaki thing. And then this, you know, it's a year, you're batting a thousand tonight, lady. <laughs> but anyway, Pete asks, asks a few more questions that get a no. You know, it's like, buy you a sake? How about a nice cold milk? And, um, you know, the scene cuts before that one gets an answer, but um, more milk imagery. Doesn't mean anything here exactly, but Pete always seems to drink milk. That means probably he's kind of tuned to looking away from things. I don't know. However it goes, the um, the disguise works on Pete. And um, we're on to the next question, which is, how is Lodge Space influencing Twin Peaks this episode? And it seems like it's doing it through this more supernaturally coded way of disguises. In a lot of ways, this episode, we're getting Leland revealing himself to us for the first time. You know, the, the Leland that the show knows is finally here again. Um, you know, coming out of a fog of influence, um, kind of like how Maddie's doing it. You know, it's like, oh, I liked being Laura or I like being treated like Laura. And now, um, you know, she's kind of coming through the grief. And now Leland is as well, it seems, in a way. And to us viewers, it does look like Leland is coming through grief. Okay, so there's the scene this episode at the Great Northern. It's a door. Um, it's the doors to Ben Horn's office. He's talking to somebody. We don't see who. Um, and then, you know, he opens it up. And Leland's right next to him. And he says, I need you back here. And um, he says, but we need to give you a test to make sure that you, you know, everything is 100%. And, um, you know, then he asks, you know, how to solve the current money issues. And then Leland just sits there and he's like, you know, uh, uh, reserve for the land because of the fire delay, you know, delay everything until Jerry gets back here from checking out Tokyo Bank, etc. And, um, you know, he just rattles off this way to um, hide money and like 
halfway laundered or something. Uh, anyway, uh, Ben loves it. He says, that's my Leland excitedly patting each other's arms, you know, like, and, um, you know, this is when we know that, um, you know, 13 episodes in, this is the Leland who has always been in the city before. Uh, yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> who's always been in the town before the death of Laura Palmer. You know, th this is the, um, this is the publicly behaving father. Yet here we also have uh, his Bob side revealing itself, being in locks, being in lockstep with Leland. Um, you know, Leland sits down. He gets preoccupied by that white fox. He grabs some of the fur for the later Bob assisted kill. You know, it's like he's here being himself, but he's also getting ready to frame Ben. And what that tells me is that Bob has always been right there in the front with Leland. And on a normal day, it's it's more indistinguishable than able to be separated. You know, they, they both seem to be working together at the same time in a um in a lodgy disguised way. And um Leland is not the only um the only human lodge spirit kind of combo here. Um, we also have Philip Gerard. You know, he, he, this episode, he makes a full switch into his inhabiting spirit, Mike, in front of like regular humans. But um, before we dig into that, we kind of have to look into how Gordon Cole seems to know a few things. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we see Gordon Cole. Um, you know, the first thing, well, I mean, we hear him too, you know, it's like with the first time we see him is with Harry and Donna, you know, he's shouting for Sheriff Truman and, um, you know, then he pops into the room and asks the same question at full blast. And, um, you know, like, why is he there? He's looking for Cooper. You know, he, um, he, uh, what was he say? He pays a visit to any agent who went down in the field and, um, yeah, I know we uh, we talked about, you know, leaving Donna in the room, but um, what did they talk about? Well, um, he says Agent Rosenfield won't be coming back, which is a nod to uh, the 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 meta situation, I guess you'd call it, of uh, Miguel Ferrar getting another gig on another series. Um, and, you know, that series gets quickly canceled. So that's why he's back in episode 16. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Episode 16, he's back. Um, so that show didn't really make it too long, but you know, this was the in show way to, uh, <laughs> explain his continuity loss. And, um, you know, Gordon basically becomes the voice that, um, needs to carry this kind of exposition. You know, we get the lab fiber report that, uh, that the shooter was wearing a Vicuna coat. Um, and Harry says, you know, Vicuna and, uh, we get one of the best lines, you know, sounds really good, Sheriff, but I already ate uh, the um, the one armor's syringe is a combination of drugs. Albert's never seen really weird stuff. Uh, there's um, there were also paper down the tracks from a diary that. Um, oh, no, he, he figures out that it was from a diary. And um, at that point during Cole's update, we get Hawk entering with an unwilling Gerard and, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, Cole points over at him and says, there's the one armor now. And, you know, again, this is a fugitive reference. It's not exactly pointing out that, um, 
that, you know, a man doesn't have an arm where he should, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's, it's not, it's not just pointing out disability. It's that whole, you know, looking for the one arm man to solve the crime. So yeah, from a story point of view, we've got, um, we've got Cole bringing in the exposition that Albert usually brings in, you know, he connects the dots. Um, you know, at least in terms of the one arm man or Philip Gerard, he connects those dots. And, um, we can also tell that he's just off, you know, a, a bit off from the main frequency. You know, it's like the, I, I kind of think, you know, the hearing aids are part of uh, electricity. It amplifies frequencies. And um, they, they even call attention to it by using um, uh, Gordon's ear with the hearing aid as an establishing shot of the scene when he and Cooper reunite, where... Um, you know, it's like Cole keeps looking forward. Cooper comes in. He's looking forward. You know, they look like mirror images um, on, on parallel uh, parts of the scene. And, um, you know, Cooper snaps and points right at him. So, you know, just visually speaking, we get the idea that Cole is also kind of in tune with this intuition stuff. And, um, yeah, I'll be talking about his hearing aids a lot, like with how, like, maybe like his... Uh, his hearing aids can like tune or like he, he can tell the frequencies that he's listening to. So he kind of knows which frequency they're on, you know, as far as if it's a, um, like maybe a more positive thing or a negative thing, or, you know, maybe a blue rose thing, let's say, you know, he can recognize things because of where they are as he can hear them where they are on his dial. I mean, but yeah, so he takes Cooper into a room and you know, he talks about, you know, the, the, you remind me of a small Mexican chihuahua and, uh, <laughs> you know, they thumbs up each other. Um, and you know, they, they, uh, you know, they thumbs up each other because that doesn't involve hearing. That's just, you know, visual cue. And, um, then there's the, um, it, it kind of sounds like, even though it's just funny dialogue that, um, Robert Engels might've, um, thought his hard of hearing mother would have you know, said about certain words. Um, but it kind of almost gives a vibe because of that whole thing that they seem to be on the same um, intuition line that, you know, the, these random little bits from Cole seem like, you know, if we break the code, we'll solve the understanding. So Cole really does try to have a private conversation with Cooper, even though he's shouting, I believe in secrecy, Coop. <laughs> you know, like it's, um, yeah, I mean, Harry will come in and say, and say, we can hear every word you're saying um, eventually, but, you know, um, and, and I'm sure that Cooper understands what's happening, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's still fun that like, we still get a hallway shot where, um, where Hawk and Harry are looking at each other, like, you know, it's like, should we tell them we can hear everything? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but we hear, um, we hear some more Albert style exposition where, um, you know, Gordon talks about his problems in Pittsburgh and let's not make this another one. And, um, you know, Cooper says no case similarities. And, um, you know, Cole, Cole's hand goes to Cooper's arm and says, you know, I'm proud of you, Coop. You know, Cooper asks about the Chihuahua comment. Um, and, you know, like, how does, how does Cole answer that? He says two plus two does not always equal four. And, um, 
that's when we get the Laura theme. Uh, yeah, the, the Laura Palmer theme kicking in in the soundtrack. And uh, that's when Harry pops in and says that, you know, they can hear everything they say. And um, then we get Cole's um, extra little bit of why he's there, too. Like why he specifically is there. Um, he got an anonymous letter from uh, to home base, which is um, you know the Philly office, I'm assuming, and um, it's um, it's a chess deal, an opening move from Wyndham Earl. You know, <laughs> just thinking about the um, the six or so episodes after um, after the reveal episode happened, and um, you know, noticing that they had Wyndham Earl here, right here, to kind of maybe seed through, um, starting in a couple episodes. You know, it's so frustrating to know that, like, we um, we missed out on some momentum this way. You know, would it have saved Twin Peaks ratings? I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, it's like... Uh, this is one of those missed opportunities. And I know even Frost has said so in retrospect. All right. Anyway, um, we're pretty much done with Gordon Cole, except that he happens to be in the room for the Gerard to Mike uh, transformation. And um, yeah, we have, you know, it's, it's the final scene. It's in that, um, that main conference room where the donuts usually are. Um, we've got Cooper, Hawk, Harry and Gordon flanking Philip Gerard, who really wants his medicine. You know, he's freaking out. And, um, you know, it's like compassion would say, yeah, get this guy his medicine. He's obviously in trouble. But, um, you know, we, we got, um, we got Gordon saying that the, um, the stuff in his shot was hell, hair, <laughs> hella paradol. Um, you know, Cooper, Cooper asks Gerard if he suffers from schizophrenia and, um, I mean, this is really cruel to Gerard here, but um, we've got Gordon Cole basically justifying it, saying, if we give him the drug coop, we'll never see the other side. So, again, Gordon knows things about this that, like, he knows not necessarily what's going to happen, but how it will in this case. And, um, yeah, he's letting on more. I'm like, he, he has field experience with this kind of stuff. And it's clear here. And because they don't give him the uh, the help Eridol kind of drug, um, we've got Gerard leaning his head all the way back so he can't even see it. All we see is his stomach. So it almost feels like he's floating from his um, from his lungs area. And, um, you know, rearing back the chest like that. Oh, and this is also where the voice filter begins. So he's obviously making the transition to Mike. But um, rearing his chest up like that, it reminds me of the Bob organ that kind of is there, or, or like there, there's like a bubble area on the um, the dead guy in part 18 of uh, season three, and then of course you know the um, the organ that gets removed from um, from Doppelcooper in uh, the beginning of part eight of season three. You know, it's like the it 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 almost feels like whatever Mike is could be like almost trying to pull itself out of, you know, like rising from, um, an organ spot into a more prominent position within the body almost. 
And then the switch absolutely happens. And Mike says, there is no need for medicine. I am not in pain. So Cooper asks, who are you? Um, you know, he says, my name is Mike. What are you? I am an inhabiting spirit. Who is Philip Gerard? He is host to me. So we get right there that, um, yeah, he he is an inhabiting spirit rather than this being probably a Tulpa situation. Um, you know, Cooper then establishes that um, you spoke to me in my dream about Bob. And then uh, Mike says, he was my familiar. And that means that Bob was in service to Mike. Um, was Bob the arm at one point? No, I don't think so. But um, I kind of feel like if he was a familiar, that means that he was either near to Mike or like part of Mike, like in between Mike and the arm. Like maybe there was Bob in there. Maybe Bob was actually the inhabiting spirit at one point. Um, yeah, we don't we don't get too much more information about this, but it's like I I am absolutely curious about their relationship. And um, then we get Cooper asking, where does Bob come from? And, um, you know, Mike says, that cannot be revealed. Um, so, you know, stonewalled right there. Uh, what does Bob want? And then <laughs> we totally get motivation here because that's all Bob is, is want. I mean, that's, that's pretty much his job description right there. So, of course, he has an answer. Uh, he is Bob, eager for fun. He wears a smile. Everybody run. Um, and then Mike elaborates, do you understand the parasite? It attaches itself to a life form and feeds. Bob requires a human host. He feeds on fear and the pleasures. So, yeah, he um, he right here is explained as like an inhabiting spirit. So I guess at this point, we really do know that um, we should be expecting a possession in the next week's episode when it's um, already publicized that it was going to be a reveal of the killer. So we've also got this idea that Bob is a thing that just wants things and um, he wants to make things happen. And um, he doesn't have any care about anybody else because when he, when he wears the smile, everybody runs. So, you know, he is, he is dangerous when he's having fun. And, um, he feeds on fear and the pleasures. Those are um, fear and pleasure is basically the results of dreams. And, um, you know, he feeds on both kind of intentions. You know, the intention for, uh, you know, fear is negative and um, the fear of pleasures, which, you know, kind of come from love probably. Um, you know, the, those are the things that uh, Bob can make. You know, uh, I mean, he, he, um, that, that is the kind of thing that sustains him, but he can also make them apparently because he says, um, they are his children about he feeds on fear and the pleasures. So is it because he creates the fear and the pleasures as well as feeds on it? It would make a lot of sense because it seems like Leland's pleasures are creating fear in other people as well. And, um, you know, it's like, so he's feeding on Leland's pleasures, but he's also feeding on the, uh, the, the pain that that creates. Now Mike goes into elaborating on how he is similar to Bob. And he says, I am similar to Bob. We were, we once were partners. And this is when Cooper and Mike say together that through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. 
And then Cooper drops out because I think, you know, they, everybody associates him with the magician side of things. But then Mike is the one who invokes the rest, which is um, one chance out between two worlds, fire walk with me. And because of the next part of this thing, it seems like one chance out between two worlds, fire walk with me. That almost seems like it's um, a thing that a negative frequency would be able to to uh, work with or interact with. But um, but then we have Mike continuing and saying, but then I saw the face of God and was purified. I took the arm off and remained close to this vessel, inhabiting from time to time for a single purpose. So in that way, Mike seems less like you know, an organ inside. You know, like maybe he, when, um, when he took the arm off, he was able to leave too. Uh, from Philip Gerard, but I don't think it's quite like that. Um, although, I mean, you know, he says from time to time inhabiting this vessel for a single purpose. But, you know, another implication that, you know, I took off the arm. But, you know, that could just be a way of uncorking things so that, you know, uh, Gerard was able to leave and come back at will. But what is Mike's uh, single purpose? To find, uh, Cooper asks, to find Bob? And then Mike says to stop him. And um, this right here, to find Bob or to stop him, this is the distinction in season three. Um, in, um, in, in part 17, Cole tells uh, Albert and Tammy about, you know, their, their whole goal or the, the whole plan, quote unquote, that uh, Briggs and Cooper and Cole were working together on was to find judy it had nothing to do with stopping judy it had nothing to do with killing judy um they stopped at finding judy and yet here in in language of the show we've got mike saying to stop him so there is a distinction that is worth considering when you're watching season three and trying to figure out what it's actually trying to do with its plan in that way is the Blue Rose Task Force more about locating problems and less about ending problems? You know, like, I, I don't know. Anyway, Mike about Bob says, this is his true face, but few can see it. The gifted and the damned. And, you know, of course, you know, the gifted, you know, it's like maybe you're able to see dreams, um, but they're the kind of positive dreams. And then the other one, maybe you can see nightmares that you're kind of crippled by. You know, it's a, but either way, it seems like if you can see the dream frequency clearly, um, it's either because you're gifted and you just can or because it's gotten its hooks into you. Anyway, instead of Cooper asking about, you know, who is Bob inside now or any question like that, um, you know, like who might he be inhabiting? Um, Cooper basically just asks, is Bob near us now? And um, Mike says, for nearly 40 years. So that almost seems like he has found him, but he hasn't stopped him. And then we've got Cooper asking, uh, where? And Mike says, a large house made of wood, surrounded by trees. The house is filled with many rooms, each alike, but occupied by different souls, night after night. And that's when Cooper says the Great Northern Hotel, and then the uh, the orchestra hits go off, you know, like, 
<laughs> and uh, it's very ominous and it's very dramatic. Yeah, so we've got we've got Mike here, like scaring the hell out of me because it's it really is like more dramatic than even those orchestra hits at the end. Uh, <laughs> and you know, it's like he he knows things about Bob, my personal boogeyman. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's got the booming voice and, um, you know, he's not, he's not that, uh, playful shoe salesman anymore. And, um, you know, that voice filter makes him really unnerving as well. In this case, you know, he hasn't caught Bob yet. And, um, he hasn't even really worked long with the law enforcement. You know, it's like he, it, we're basically invoking knowledge about the the bad guy of twin peaks and um you know it's like mike you know he's he he says he's trying to be a good guy but you know is he <laughs> yeah on the first listen and on, on the first watch through of this show it's hard to know you know it's like we just know that he's supernatural that's all we know for sure you know everything else at the time was up for grabs but we wanted everything that he said to be absolutely true and I mean, not, you know, we didn't want the part about Bob to be true, but if it was, we want somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, trying to catch him. And, um, this was a great way to set up the, um, the conclusion to the, the murder, uh, the murder of Laura Palmer, uh, at least as far as, you know, the viewers knew, you know, like we didn't know it was going to be a three-parter that, um, <laughs> you know, ends with Leland's death too. We just knew that, um, next week we were going to know who did it. So, yeah, I mean, I could, I could go back into, uh, <laughs> I could go back into how, um, Philip Gerard and Mike might work together, but you know, we can do that over the next couple episodes cause it's a little bit more, um, more relevant there. And, um, you know, right now, we are out of episode, so um, I'm just going to go into the sign-off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show, and we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. You can visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Oh God, It Hurts, that's HZ is in the unit of measure, and Brevity Box. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, including yours truly, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my Electricity Nexus column, and content on many other TV shows at 25yearslatersite.com and or tvobsessive.com. And if you want to be part of the next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode 14, the 15th overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.
kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe the show takes place the show takes place This is a, a gift to all the fans. 